You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Thanks, Todd. Ross described last week's sermon as a parking lot clearing sermon, which means uh, that either you weren't here last week or, um, or he was wrong. It was a parking lot clearing sermon, not because it was 50 minutes long, we've grown accustomed to that, but because it was about submitting to bad government, which seems particularly painful today. But this week isn't any better because we're going to talk about marriage and specifically we're going to talk about submitting and suffering in marriage. So turn to 1 Peter 3 or click to 1 Peter 3 and we're going to be looking at the first seven verses of that chapter. While you're doing this, I have a question. Do you remember when people made photo albums. I'm not talking about on Facebook where you create a photo album. I'm talking about a real paper book with plastic sleeves and row after row after row after row after row of pictures. My grandparents had two pieces of furniture, these big, long, low hutches, and they had these doors that covered up shelving inside and There must have been decades and decades and decades of history wrapped up in the pictures in those photo albums. And when I was a little boy and we were staying at my grandparents' house, this was before the internet, before satellite TV, before, imagine this, video games, even before cable TV, when it was a hot summer day in Beaumont, Texas, when it was a double-triple It was 100 degrees outside and 100% humidity. Well, those were the days that we would sit inside the house with my cousins, and we'd pull all those albums out, and we would look at them, and we'd look at the history of our family. You know, if you just looked at those books, you would think that life in the Hager family was one continuous string of holidays, birthday parties, athletic events, and births, that nothing much beside that ever seemed to happen in our family. And on top of that, everybody was always happy, always smiling. It was great. But I knew that wasn't a true picture of what our family was like. Even as a kid, because I knew for it to be true, you'd have to have some pictures of some things that we don't want to remember, that we don't take a picture of, things that we're not proud of, or things that wouldn't look so different today in real life compared to what they used to look back then. Especially wedding pictures. You know, very rarely do you see pictures from a wedding that even begin to capture a fraction of the drama of the conflict, of the tears even, 
that surround the process by which a woman is joined to a man in marriage. Or maybe the greater conflict comes from the process of two families connecting together for the first time. But there's one thing that is almost always true, at least for normal people, not for some of you freaks out there. <laughs> that is that that wedding day, that picture, is about the best you're ever going to look. Right? Don't believe me? Here's exhibit A, Tom. Fritz and Serena Hager, actually that was Serena Drago before she was Serena Hager, in 1992, 24 years ago, the engagement pictures, notice both of us have big hair back then. <laughs> the next picture is our wedding picture. You know, as you look at me today, you see less hair and more of everything else. You know, I can't run as fast or as far as I could then. I can't swim as fast or as far. I can't even shoot as well as I used to be able to shoot. You know, it's kind of sad when you think about it. But what's even sadder is many of us spend the rest of our married life trying, struggling, fighting, striving to get back to that day. We don't say that, but that's what we work for. It's what we idealize. Maybe we physically we sweat and starve and supplement and maybe even cut to fight against time and gravity to hold on to that image or get back to that ideal. Or maybe you've given up, and you know there is no way to recapture that look, or worse, that feeling. You remember that feeling, that shameless love, that excitement, that oxytocin-induced hormonal rush where you could not imagine that you would love another human being like that ever again. And so when you look at that picture... Maybe it's not just something that you can't get back to. Maybe it's a reminder of how unhappy you are today. The picture is kind of a ruler to see how you measure up to that impossible to regain standard. At least that's what the world points us to, youth and beauty. You know, I shaved my beard off a couple of weeks ago now and everyone said, Gosh, you look so much younger and so much thinner, which meant for the last five years, I've looked older and fatter. <laughs> but our text today is going to point us on a totally different trajectory than the world offers. It's a trajectory where one can get better through the years. One where beauty and love and peace and joy increase and grow rather than decrease and fade or remain just out of our grasp. Our passage today can be broken down into three sections describing two key relationships. Verses 1 and 2 are wives to husbands. Verse 7 is husbands to wives. 
And in the middle, verse 3 through 6, Peter tells us what true beauty is. Might think of this as beauty tips by Peter. So let's get started, beginning in verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Likewise, first word, like what? Like husbands or just like corrupt emperors or brutal governors that we learned about in 2, 13, and 14? Or maybe they're the unjust master. If that's the case, they shouldn't be. The key is to look back in chapter 2 in verse 12, which says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So the likewise refers back to Peter's teaching about how believers, new creations in Christ, are transformed through the power of the gospel, and then because of that, how they should behave. Honorably, of course, but responding to the reality of suffering in their life with humility and good deeds. So they can actually lead people to faith in Jesus and new life for themselves. So that their friends and family and spouse can glorify God on the day of salvation. On the day of visitation, verse 12. To put to silence the ignorance of foolish people in verse 15. All following the example of Christ who suffered unjustly for our sake. Where Peter writes in verse 22, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So likewise, one word here, but it carries the weight of the previous 13 verses. So if this whole passage is about suffering, who is suffering here? The answer is wives. They're suffering because of their husbands. Notice this verse isn't women are subject to all men. It's wives subject to their own husbands. Not girlfriends submitting to boyfriends. Just wives to their own husband. And why are they suffering? Because the wife is a believer and the husband is not. Which is what that phrase, even if some do not obey the word, usually refers to. Usually refers to somebody who's rejected the gospel. Although I think the same principles can apply here to a husband who is a believer who is disobedient to the word in the form of sin. You know, this is why Scripture teaches that believers should not enter into marriage with unbelievers because it will lead to suffering, which unmarried men and women here today in particular should take note of because as Peter writes to the churches of Asia Minor, 
The gospel is sweeping over the entire continent. And people come to faith inside a household, inside a marriage, and they realize that they are married to an unbeliever. And this is a culture where women could not have friends who were not their husband's friends. They couldn't worship a God other than their husband's God. And even worse, it was seen as rebellion. And it was bad not just for the house, but for all of society. So this is no small dilemma for these wives. So what does Peter tell them to do? He uses the S word. Those of you with kids, you may notice that um, different houses have different S words. Um, so I'm not talking about uh, stupid or shut up. Um, sometimes those are S words. I'm talking about submit, be subject to. So in this house today, that is the S word. I'm not sure what word you thought it might be other than that, but it's, it's submit. And before I tell you what it means, I'm going to tell you what it doesn't mean. And my hope is that at the end of that list, you'll still be listening to me so I can then tell you what it does mean. So here's what submission does mean, and, and I'm going to admit this list largely comes from John Piper, and John Piper's never wrong. And so if you're mad about this list, you can be mad at him. Um, I've subtracted and edited a little bit, but it's mostly John. So, number one, submission is not agreeing on everything. In fact, it's not really submission until you disagree. You just happen to want to do the same thing your spouse wants to do. Not only do you disagree at times, it also doesn't mean that the husband is always right. We know that can't be what submission is. Submission by the wife includes respectful communication of opinions, desires, wishes, preferences, concerns, fears, ideas, and plans. In fact, Tony Evans says that sometimes submission for the wife is ducking so God can hit your husband. Might be some bruised husbands here in the audience today. Number two, submission does not mean leaving your brain at the altar. It doesn't mean you become a mindless automaton of a consecutive string of yes dears, or that you're incapable of an original thought on your own, apart from your husband. None of that changes with marriage. Number three, submission does not mean you do not try to influence your husband. In fact, that's the whole purpose of this section, is how to influence your husband, how, to, how he might be won over, as verse says. It's got this great play on words. The husbands do not obey the word, but they are one without a word. The focus here, as it has been in the last half of chapter 2, is on conduct, how you act. So ladies, 
Nagging is out of bounds. It's not respectful, like it's mentioned here in verse 2 of the husband's leadership. It's your endurance of suffering, not complaining about suffering, that is winsome to him. Number four, submission is not putting the will of the husband before the will of Christ. Christ is the standard. He's the example, as verse 21 says. And he suffered in verse 22. He was reviled, verse 23. He did not threaten. He endured all of that and yet did not sin. So ladies, if your husband is asking you to sin, to lie, to cheat, to do something that is sexually sinful, then you shouldn't do that. That's not what submission means. But here's the trick. You need to refuse that in a way that communicates your loyalty to Christ above all else and a desire to follow your husband's leadership when it doesn't conflict with the revealed will of God. And number five, submission does not mean living or acting in fear of abuse. Let me be clear. Submission can be scary. We'll see that in this next section. Following a husband who does not seek the Lord, who is selfish, who is childish, who is vindictive, who does not fulfill his biblical role as a husband is scary. But wives, you should not submit to physical or emotional abuse from your husband. Number six, submission is not something husbands make their wives do. So this section is addressed to wives. The command is to the wives. The verb is passive. They're to be subject. Husbands, you cannot force your wives to do this. You can't play the submission card. You are not the Holy Spirit for your wife. If she offers submission to you, it is a gift that should be treasured and an awesome responsibility that should not be abused. So hopefully you're still with me. That's all it is not. So what is submission? Piper says it this way. Submission is the defined calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and so help to carry it through according to her gifts. It's voluntary, though not optional. It is specific to a wife and her husband, and it is an act of grace, unmerited by the husband. It means, ladies, that you are more concerned about your witness than your rights. So that's the first three words. Actually, we've covered more than three words. We've actually covered the first two verses, and that describes the purpose and the means by which a wife may win over her unbelieving husband. So let me tell you about a time in my marriage where we wrestled with this issue of submission. It was late 2004, Serena and I lived in Dallas, and we had four boys 
ages 6 to 2. And the Iraq war had kicked up and I was feeling restless and guilty that my West Point classmates were back in combat again. I began to feel like maybe God was calling me back into the army. Not just in some general way, like a career change, but in a very specific way to deploy to Iraq with a brigade of the Texas National Guard sometime in early 2006. I had a friend who was the battalion commander, and he wanted me to command one of his companies. Well, you can imagine Serena's reaction. Shock, for starters. I'd been out of the Army for over 10 years. She'd never even been an Army wife. She felt abandoned. It was an 18-month tour back then. I'd be in some foreign country while she was home raising four young boys. And she was afraid. She's afraid that I wouldn't come back. Or all of me wouldn't come back. Or I would come back and I would be different. You know, she didn't hide how she felt about it. She thought and she argued that my mission, my responsibility was with her and the boys and not the Texas National Guard. But here's what she never did. Even though it's what her friends told her to do, even though it's what members of my family told her to do, she never drew a line in the sand and said, you will not do this. Or you will do this over my dead body. She never, she never threatened that. We prayed, we searched Scripture, we sought counsel, and ultimately she gave me the time and the space to conclude that that wasn't really what God wanted me to do. Her submission was not perfect. It wasn't without tension and hurt feelings and tears, but ultimately she placed her hope not in me, but in God. So that's the first section, wives relating to husbands. Now the next is beauty tips by Peter, verses 3 through 6. So just as the gospel is transforming to marriages, it also redefines what beauty is. Let's read verse 3 and 4, and we'll come back and get 5 and 6. Still addressing wives. Do not let your adorning be external the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Adorn. It's the Greek word cosmeo. It's the word we get cosmetics from. And it means to make beautiful or attractive through decoration. Peter is advocating for a counter-cultural view of what women strive for to be considered more attractive for their husbands. And he says, what is true then is what is true today not to focus on the external, 
the fancy hairdos, the elaborate jewelry, the flashy clothes. And I don't think you can interpret this verse to read like, don't ever braid your hair or don't ever wear gold jewelry, because it certainly wouldn't also say, and don't ever wear clothes. So you also can't read this, though, as a command to be frumpy. That's a biblical word, frumpy. <laughs> because I think part of submission is understanding and accommodating, where appropriate, your husband's desires. But the point here is the focus of the wife and her development of inner beauty, of character, of a gentle and quiet spirit described in two ways. The first is it's imperishable. Outward beauty, perishable, fading, elusive. Inner beauty can't be bought with money and it lasts into eternity. You know, the second way Peter describes this inner beauty is that it is very precious in the sight of God. So in today's culture that assaults women with images in every media imaginable, that lifts up standards of unattainable or at least unmaintainable beauty, in a world that spends $460 billion a year on cosmetics and $20 billion a year on plastic surgery. $480 billion in total. It is as if the heavens have parted and the definitive inerrant word of God has come down on beauty and it has thundered down and it labels all of that external beauty as insignificant compared to how precious that gentle, quiet spirit is. Ladies, I hope you can rest in that. You know, Proverbs paints a very vivid picture of what the opposite of a quiet, gentle spirit is. For whatever reason, it's always struck me as one of the funniest passages in Scripture. Proverbs 21, 9. It says, It is better to live in a corner of the housetop up on your roof than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. So sometimes it's quarrelsome, uh, sometimes it's a fighting spirit, sometimes it's contentiousness, but it is the exact opposite of a quiet, gentle spirit. So guys, when was the last time you were up on your roof? I was up there a couple of years ago. I make it a point not to go on the roof very often. I was putting a digital antenna up and it was hot even though it was still in the morning it burned my hands I felt heat coming from directions I didn't know was physically possible and the entire time I felt like I was just about to fall off the roof and those of you who know me know I've been to the orthopedist enough to where I wanted to avoid that at all costs 
And I certainly wouldn't want to live on the corner of that roof. Unless, apparently, I lived with a quarrelsome wife. And somehow that would be better. Fortunately, I don't. You know, the other way precious is translated in here is costly. Or as the NIV translates it as great worth. So why is this gentle and quiet spirit costly? Why is it worth so much? Why is it worth more than $480 billion spent every year on cosmetics and plastic surgery? The answer is back in chapter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. That gentle, quiet spirit that is beautiful is a fruit of the work of the Holy Spirit in you that is present only when, when and because you have placed your faith in Jesus, the one who bore your sin. So that's why that gentle spirit is so precious to God. The Father, it cost Him the life of His Son. So let that sink in. Men, imagine the offense to God, much less your wife, when we prefer the fading beauty of the flesh to the imperishable fruit of of the Spirit. When we care more about those extra pounds she's put on than how patiently she serves us and our family. And young men here today, and including my sons, if you want to know what true beauty looks like, What you should be looking for in your girlfriend and one day your wife it's not what the world says. It's a quiet and gentle spirit at peace with the Lord. That's true beauty. So ladies, how do you get that kind of beauty? Verse 5 says it, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. By submitting to their own husbands. They had faith, they hoped in God. But what else? They submitted to their husbands. So in some mysterious way, submitting to your husband is actually good for you. It makes you more precious to God because it is sanctifying. It makes you more like Christ. It makes you more beautiful. 
You know, I said at the beginning of the sermon that this passage would show us a way to reverse the common trajectory of never looking better than your wedding day. And the answer is right here in verse 4. Ladies, you want your husband to honestly and truthfully say that you are more beautiful today than the day I married you? The secret is right here. That the Holy Spirit would develop in you a gentle and quiet spirit through submission to your husband. And men, if you have that today, know that it is a precious gift from the Lord worthy of your eternal gratitude and your praise. So it looks like I've run out of time today, so we'll just skip verse 7, the instruction for men. No, we won't. Verse 7. Here we go, guys. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Likewise, here it is again. So, likewise, suffer, husbands, while doing what is right with Christ as your example. That's what the likewise means. So, see, ladies, it's not all easy for us either. Peter's now addressing husbands, and his command is, live with your wives in an understanding way. Literally, that means live according to knowledge. Not just any knowledge, not book knowledge, not the ability to complete a survey and answer a bunch of questions about your wife, but knowledge of her. Peter's saying you must know your wife I think that ties back to verse 4. Husbands need to know that hidden person of the heart. To see true beauty, you have to know that inner person. That's not immediately visible as you walk down the street or when you wake up in the morning in the way external beauty is. Husbands, to know our wives, we need to ask some questions. And then we need to listen. Lots of things you could do. Here's a, here's a couple. Tell me what you're worried about. Tell me what you're afraid of. And then maybe the scariest one. How are we doing? But it's not just knowing her, it's living like you know her. It's adjusting the way you live, the things you pursue, how you communicate with her, how your life is organized, the roles around the house. All of those things adjust so that you live, not how you want to live, but based on what you know about her.
Peter goes on with more. Show her honor. Some translations say, be considerate or be respectful. So even in this environment of wives submitting to husband, there is still mutual respect. And Peter gives husbands three reasons why you should honor your wife. First is tied up in this sometimes confusing phrase translated here in the ESV as weaker vessel. What does that mean, a weaker vessel? I don't think I've ever called Serena a vessel, and if I did, I don't think she would appreciate it. <laughs> does it mean physically weaker? Well, that's generally true. I don't think that's what Peter is primarily referring to here because it's not really related to anything he said up to this point. If it is, which it could be, it could be read as a specific prohibition against physical abuse. And if that's the case, then I'm perfectly fine with it, including that. You know, another option here is that it is societal weakness. What do I mean by that? Well, I said earlier that wives could not choose their own religion. They couldn't choose their own friends. They couldn't own property. So they are in a weaker role in society. But here's what I think it, it means. The last option, it views vessel more as a role or assignment, a mission. And that would mean that wives should be honored because of this role, their submitted role of wives submitted to imperfect, sinful Husbands, maybe you know some, who often do not make it easy for wives to submit. You know, the second reason is that your wife, your believing wife, Peter says, is a co-heir with you to the grace of life. The same spirit that is in you is in her. It means she was valuable enough for Jesus to die for her sins. And think about how radical this would be in a Greco-Roman culture where women couldn't own property, they couldn't inherit, but because of the gospel, what did they inherit? The grace of life. And they are now, for the first time in their lives, co-heirs. You know, when we read this passage at first glance, it might seem like a Christian wife has it worse off than her worldly peers. Submission, respect for an undeserving husband. But what we do find is they have something of incredible value. The same way that we today, by grace, through faith in Jesus, have something incredibly valuable. Another way to misunderstand this is that in our culture, we often confuse role with worth. The leader is more valuable than the follower. You know, the president has secret service protecting him. We don't. And I think that's one reason verse 1 makes women uncomfortable when they read it. It's because they automatically think subordinate and submitted must be second class. Worth less. Inferior. 
But that's not how Peter, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, views their worth. He says they are equal. Paul says it this way in Galatians 3.28, There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Does it mean there are no differences? It means there is unity and equality before the cross. Unity and equality in Christ. We are all sinners made in the image of God in need of reconciliation to our Creator. So why do you honor your wife, men? Because she has a weaker, subordinate role. She's submitted to you, and that's hard. The second reason is she's a co-heir. And the last reason is here at the end of verse 7. So that your prayers may not be hindered. Let me explain this from two vantage points. The first is the culture Peter was writing to believed that the male head of the household's prayers were more important to the gods. So his prayers were the ones that ensured the well-being of the house. But Peter's point is that if you live life with your wife taking advantage of her physically or unsympathetic to the challenges her submissive role presents, if you act with superiority, then your prayers and therefore the well-being of your household will be negatively impacted. And the second view is that to fail to live this way with your wife is sin. It is sin because it falls short of God's standard as spelled out here. And that sin breaks your fellowship with God, grieving the Holy Spirit. So men, why do you honor your wife? Because she has a weaker, subordinate role submitted to you, which is crazy hard. Because she's a co-heir, equal in worth to you. And failing to honor your wife breaks your fellowship with your God. So how do we put this all together? Husbands and wives, increasing beauty. I hope you see this is not a 50-50 deal. Contrary to what you might have heard about marriage, it's not a 50-50 proposition. I do my part, she does her part. She bags the trash, I take it to the curb. As long as she holds up her end of the bargain, I'll hold up mine. Or maybe you've heard this. He's got to meet me halfway. You know, the hard truth of this passage is that it's 100 100. There are no caveats or conditions on the wife's responsibility. She's supposed to give 100%, regardless of how much a loser her husband is. And husbands, we don't have it any easier. We have to show honor even when she's disrespectful. We adjust the way we live with her based on what we know about her 
even when that doesn't seem reasonable to us, even when she's being difficult. We give 100% all the time. Which is impossible, right? Who can do that? You might be thinking, do you know my spouse? How can I do 100%? They're not even doing zero. They're in negatives. Or do you know me? No way I can do this. I'm not humble enough. I'm too quick-tempered. I'm too unforgiving. And I often care more about my rights than my witness. But here's the good news, which is the gospel. There's a third person in this passage, and it's Jesus Christ. And he gave 100% perfectly every day of his life. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And it's through placing our hope in Him that we can see past the shortcomings of our spouse and find forgiveness for our own faults. And that is a more beautiful picture than the one you took on your wedding day. Let's pray. Father, you have existed as Father, Son, and Spirit in perfect trinity since before the creation of time. Equal in worth, equal in value, equal in divinity, and yet submitted to each other in role. The Son submitted to the Father. So, Father, I pray as we wrestle with this passage, as we wrestle with what you have called beautiful, and we wrestle with how our culture would twist and deny this truth. Father, I pray for your spirit to work in us. That you would do as you promised, that you would make us more and more like your son every day. Father, I pray for the marriages here at Bethel, for the ones that exist today and the ones in the future. I pray, Father, that husbands and wives would live in this way with one another. And Father, it would do, as you've said here, that it would draw husbands to you, would draw friends and family to you, Father, I pray for any marriages here today where one of the spouses is not a believer. I pray for that other spouse, Father, that, that you would empower them to do this impossible thing. To live their hope in you rather than the next response. Father, I pray that you would be gracious and that you would call the wandering or the unbelieving spouse to your son. Father, we would be careful and happy to give you the credit and the glory for that. 
Father, we can only come to you because of the 100% that your son gave. It's in his name that we pray to you through the power of your spirit. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.